0: Father, we love you, and uh, we are grateful that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, He is our living water. Um, We find ourselves so often desperately thirsty. We pray this morning that we would come and quench our thirst in you, and that as we drink, we would drink to our fill, Uh, that we would be overflowed by your grace, by your mercy, and that that would carry us into whatever it is that we are going to face after this next hour together. And so I pray, Father, for the next hour or so, that we would put aside any distraction, anything that's in our schedule that we think is coming later that we feel like we have to get to. And I pray that for just a few moments we would stop, we would pause, and that we would drink deeply, from the fountain that is Christ Jesus. We are grateful that you've given us life and breath this morning. And be with us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, or we've got most of the scripture we're going to look at today uh, there on your sheet. Exodus 17. Because it's a a bit of a shorter passage, I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 7. Because we've been kind of jumping around the Old Testament and we'll continue to do so, I just want to set where this is in Scripture for you. Uh, This is the book of Exodus. This is the story of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. The idea is he's going to lead them out of slavery into the Promised Land. But before they get to the Promised Land, they're going to wander through the desert in the Sinai Peninsula, It's a desert wasteland that finds itself between Egypt, the mainland Egypt, and Israel, and it is a barren place. At this point in Exodus 17, they have only been given water that was bitter to drink, and so they grumbled. Then they found themselves hungry and without food, and God sent them manna from heaven, and they grumbled. And now, once again, in the middle of this desert wasteland, they have nothing to drink. No water, as far as their eyes can see, and again, they're grumbling. They're beginning to test the Lord, and what we'll look at this morning is their hearts are becoming hard. Their hearts are becoming hard, and doubt has given way to unbelief, and they are demanding that God give them water, or else they're going to revolt. That's our passage, that's where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus this morning. Let me read it for you, Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Some of you guys know my story I grew up in a Christian home. This thing's going to fall over if I'm not careful. The Bible's too heavy for it. We're going to put it over here. Uh, Some of you guys know my story. I grew up in a Christian home, um, Lutheran home. Uh, I grew up in Waco, Texas, and so not only grew up in a Lutheran home, but being in Waco, all my friends were Baptist, because everybody's Baptist. And there's a church literally on every street corner. Uh, You may have heard this before. Waco is known as Jerusalem on the Brazos. It is a place that's inundated with, with Christianity, and I hated it. I rejected the church, I rejected Jesus Christ, and I spent the better part of my high school years struggling with doubt that gave way to unbelief. After I became a believer, right before college, and then through college, as a new Christian, I find myself still struggling with many of the same doubts that I have. Uh, Doubts about God's people, doubts about the church, doubts about God Himself. And what I want to be honest with you this morning is even as a pastor now, years and years later, I still struggle with doubt. I still struggle with doubt. There are times when I face different circumstances. Sometimes they're my own, a lot of times they're other people's. And I feel such pain such empathy, that I begin to have these little doubtful questions that creep up into my mind, and I think, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? And there's been different times, different seasons in my life, even in ministry, where that doubt has become overwhelming. And, and years ago, that doubt was crippling to me. It, it felt um, I felt shame in it. And it took some time of really uh, reflection but also reading to begin to learn something that I think is very important that I want you to wrestle with this morning, that there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Now, neither one of them are necessarily faith, but I think we, especially in the church, need to begin to be honest about the doubts that we carry. Because while doubt is not necessarily sin, unbelief is. And if we allow our doubts to become unchecked, if we keep them deep down, if we don't acknowledge them before God and before one another, then those doubts will become bitterness, they will begin to harden our heart, and we will be in a completely different place than doubt. A hardness of heart, a willful rebellion called unbelief. Where now no longer are we holding on to hope, holding on to faith, that we have rejected faith altogether. I want to read something to you that has been helpful to me. It's helpful to kind of distinguish these two. It's from um, a writer, author, theologian named Oz Guinness. Anyone know Oz Guinness? Much of what he's written has been helpful. Uh, this is from a book called Into Minds, and it's about this subject. So I want you to listen. The passage is a little bit longer than usually I like to read, especially early in the morning. But I think it's so important. He says, Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind and suspension between faith and unbelief, so that it is neither of them wholly And is each of them only partly? Okay, what's he saying? Because I know it's early. He's saying doubt is this kind of middle space somewhere between faith and unbelief. Okay, that's what doubt is. But it's it's not either one. Okay? He says the word unbelief is usually used of a willful refusal to believe or a deliberate decision to disobey. So while doubt is a state of suspension between faith and unbelief, unbelief is a state of mind which is closed against God. An attitude of heart which disobeys God as much as it disbelieves the truth. I want you to hear that. Unbelief is a state of mind that is is disobeying God as it is disbelief. Disobeying God as much as it is disbelief. He says, doubt is not the opposite of faith, unbelief is. What destroys faith is the disobedience that hardens into unbelief. I want you to hear that one more time. What destroys faith is the disobedience which hardens into unbelief. What we're going to look at this morning is the people of Israel have been harboring doubt. And this doubt has begun to harden their hearts. And now they're not just questioning God, but now they're disobeying Him. They're putting him on trial, and they're demanding that he do something different with their life. Otherwise, they're going to revolt. For them, doubt is given way to unbelief. The question I want you to wrestle with this morning is, where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself on that spectrum? And it could be anywhere this morning. But the reality is, even as Christians, if you are a believer... You're going to have seasons where you believe. Seasons of joyful belief, of fruitful belief. There's going to be seasons when you find yourself struggling with doubt. There may even be seasons where you begin to see your heart become hard. As men, we must begin to be honest about those things. And to remind each other that God really is faithful. And that He has given us His Son to feast and to drink from his living water. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The first thing I want to look at is this. We live in a barren world. We live in a barren world. I want you to look at verse 1. We're told that all of the congregation, all of the people, moved from the wilderness of sin by stages. Now, they're not leaving this. The wilderness of sin, by the way, uh, is just the Sinai Peninsula. Okay? It's this desert wasteland. And they are still wandering through this wilderness, according it says to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in this new place called Rephidim. But, it says, there was no water for the people to drink. Now, the word Rephidim means resting place, which is ironic because this place was not restful. We cannot minimize the circumstances that the people of Israel found themselves in. It's easy for us, from our chair and our perspective, to read a passage like this and say, why can't these people get it together? I mean, God has provided so much for them time and time again as they wander through the wilderness. What is their deal? But you really, I really want to challenge you this morning to put yourself in their shoes. They are in the middle of a desert wasteland. I remember long ago when I first began to read the Bible and I would read wilderness in my mind, what I pictured was something like the Yosemite Valley, <laughs> right? Just, I guess, a place with no um, cities or villages or towns. It's the wilderness, right? It looks like, here's the Yosemite Falls. <laughs> There's a river. And it wasn't until I took a trip to Israel and was part, part of the southern part of Israel pushes up against the Sinai Peninsula. And if you've ever been to southern Israel, you've seen this with your own eyes. It is the desert there literally is no water, and if you begin to travel north through that desert, you'll finally come to a sea that is dead and you can't drink either, and if you did, it would kill you. This is the kind of place that these people are wandering in. I want you to imagine, have you ever been so hot that you, you didn't know quite what to do with yourself? We live in Texas, so I imagine you probably have at some point that you would, you would do anything to get into air conditioning, that, that look, I will, I will be willing to take my kids to the mall <laughs> if it means that I can be in the A.C. I have done that so many, I cannot tell you, I hate the mall. In the summers, you will find me at the mall a whole lot, <laughs> especially on the weekends. Or, or imagine, uh, when is the most thirsty you've ever been? The most thirsty where your throat becomes so parched that you just want something to drink. And that you would literally give anything, and you might even drink anything, just to quench your thirst. That is where these people find themselves. And they've been that way for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks. They are wandering through the desert because... This is where God has led them. Now I want you to think about feeling that way. Hot and thirsty. Wanting to be in any other place other than where you are, except this is where God has led you. The reality is, brothers, we live life in a desert. That is the truth. It's not a happy truth. It's not a popular truth. But the truth is the world that we live in is barren. Ever since the fall, the world that we live in is broken. It's broken. It's barren. It's given to decay. Not only are our own bodies wasting away, but the world around us is wasting away along with it. Which means, yes, at times our circumstances will be favorable. At times we will see fruit being born. But so many times, if we're going to be honest... Life is frustrating. Life is disappointing. Life is sometimes not what we wanted or expected. Why? Because just like the people of Israel, God is leading us through the desert. And sometimes it leaves us thirsty, doesn't it? Sometimes it leaves us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And so as men, we have to face that truth and we really have a couple choices. One, we can pretend that it's not there. And I love to be a glass half full glass half full kind of guy, right? I love to be an optimist, but not at the expense of not being honest about the circumstances and trials that we face. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Some of you might not be in any kind of trial whatsoever. And you're looking at your life and you're saying it couldn't, have, it, it couldn't be better than it's ever been right now. That's the Lord's grace and kindness in your life. But others, you have no doubt that you find yourself in the midst of a season where you're looking around and you're saying, this is a desert. This is a desert. This is a wasteland. Where is God leading me? Apostle Paul puts it this way. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. You don't have to turn there, just listen. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, I want you to listen to what he says. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says that the creation, the world around us, has been subjected to futility. Where do you see that futility in your life? Where have you seen that futility in your life? Have you ever been in the midst of a circumstance that's caused you to question God's provision? To wonder, God, where are you? Brothers, that's what we call doubt. That when we have faith, faith that begins to be tested, sometimes we respond to that with doubt. And what I want to argue this morning is that doubt is not necessarily sinful. It's not where we want to stay, but it's not necessarily sinful. The Bible's full of doubt. The Psalms are full of doubt. David bringing his doubt before the Lord. The greatest example of doubt would perhaps be Thomas. Doubting Thomas. After Christ is risen again, he comes and he says, Look, I can't believe unless you show me your hands, Lord unless you show me your side, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a statement of doubt. It's holding on to what we know to be true, and yet we look at our circumstances and it's causing us to question what we know to be true deep down in our souls. But here's the problem. If we're not honest about our doubt, if we're not honest about the circumstances that uh, surround us in this life, then that doubt begins to kind of creep in And begins to put calluses around our heart. And our heart becomes hardened. And now doubt has given way to bitterness. And bitterness gives way to unbelief. And unbelief is sin. And it's a very dark place to be. I want to show you what unbelief looks like. It's putting God on trial. Unbelief is putting God on trial. That's the second thing I want to look at. Look at verse 2. Therefore... The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So these conditions are harsh, they're hot, they're thirsty. And verse 2 says, The people quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with Moses and they said, Give us water to drink. The word quarrel here is important in Hebrew. It's not the word grumble, that word's going to be used later, it's been used before. They've spent many, many uh, of these uh, episodes throughout the book of Exodus grumbling, complaining, right? Um, You know what that's like. Um, If you're honest, you've done it. I know your children have done it. Mine do it every day. Just grumble. Why are we here? Are we there yet? When are we going to get to the promised land? This is different than grumbling, though. This is quarreling. The word quarrel has a a lawsuit in mind. It's the same kind of word that's used often in Hebrew that talks about suing somebody, putting somebody on trial. The people are coming to Moses litigiously, They want to put Moses on trial. They want to put God on trial. They are demanding a verdict. They're demanding retribution. They're not just complaining and saying, hey, when are we going to get there? They're saying, if we don't get there right now, then there will be a revolt and we are done. Brothers, what I want you to see is they're grumbling, their doubts have hardened their heart, and now they're testing God. They're putting him on trial. They're demanding that he do something different. Otherwise, they walk. Last Sunday, a couple, just a couple days ago, I preached about lament. The importance of lament. That why, as the church, we need to learn what it looks like to lament. To lament is to bring our doubt, to bring our disappointment to the Lord, and surrender that is something we must learn to do. That is not what the people of Israel are doing here. They are bringing their doubt. They're bringing their disappointment to the Lord. They're not surrendering. They're demanding that God surrender. And that's the difference. That's unbelief. Lament is a form of praise It's recognizing that God is holy and we are not. Though we don't understand the circumstances that surround us, we submit to him, we surrender to him, and we're asking that he would show us more of his glory, that he would remind us that he is faithful. Unbelief says, I'm bringing my doubt, I'm bringing my disappointment, and I'm holding you responsible, God. And I demand that you do something different because I know better. It's a hardness of heart. It's a willful disobedience that gives way to disbelief. The second thing I want you to see is what Moses says in response. I want you to look at the second part of verse 2. He says, Why do you quarrel with me? And then he says, Why do you test the Lord? In other words, what Moses is saying is, Look, when you come after me, you're not just questioning me and my leadership. Ultimately, you are testing the Lord. You're putting God to the test. You're testing his patience. You're testing his provision. You're testing his sovereignty. You're putting yourself in a place of authority over him. Again, that's what unbelief does to us. It assumes that we are God and he is not. That we know better that he does not. And so verse 3, it says, But the people there thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I want you to hear the anger, the assumption behind their question. Remember, where, what was Egypt like for them? If you know the story, Was was Egypt particularly pleasant for the people of Israel? They had no freedom. Not only were they slaves, but they were treated harshly. And here they are, and they're saying, look, why would you bring us out of that? Because look, now we're looking at our circumstances. We're just going to die out here. It's an echo of what they've asked over and over again, just a chapter before. Exodus 16.3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's the same thing. We would have rather have died in Egypt where we could have had food rather than die out here in the wilderness where we have nothing. We would rather have died in Egypt where we would have had water, even though we're enslaved, rather than be out here and be thirsty. This is what unbelief does to us. This is what sin does to us. It so distorts our minds to think that it would be better outside of God's provision, outside of God's grace, going at it on our own. Again, I want you to imagine most thirsty you've ever been that you would literally drink anything in order to quench your thirst. Brothers, isn't that what we do? When the circumstances of our life cause us to be thirsty. Don't we so often try to quench our thirst with drink that just does not satisfy? That's what the people of God are doing here. They're saying, I'd much rather go back to slavery where at least there was something to drink to, to be thirsty here. What sin caused us to do, what unbelief causes us to do, it says, I, I, I would rather go back into slavery because I think it's going to be better there for me. And so well, how does God respond? How does God respond to this with us? What does this look like when we find ourselves in the midst of the desert? It's the last thing, and where we're going to end this morning before we go to our tables. God, out of His grace, out of His mercy, responds to our doubt, and yes, even the sin of unbelief. By giving us living water in the midst of the desert. He gives us water even when we feel like we are most parched. When we need it the most. And this is what we see with the people of Israel. I want you to look at verse 5. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. His response to Moses is to take up this very same staff that I used through you to lead the people out of slavery and to use it again. It's a reminder that as God lifts up the staff again that He's faithful. That look, He's the one that led them out of slavery and He's going to lead them through the desert. That He has never left them. He has never forsaken them. He has always provided and He's going to provide even still. So, with the same staff that he struck the water of the Nile and turned it to blood, now he commands him to take this staff, to take this staff and to strike a rock. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders. I want you to notice a few things. One, This staff, Moses strikes the rock, and it's a miracle. I mean, again, imagine you're in a desert. All you see are rocks, (laughs) right? All you see is dirt and rocks, and out of this barren wasteland, God provides water. Brothers, that is what the Lord has provided for you and me today. Though we cannot see sometimes with our own eyes and our own perspective His sovereign hand working grace. I promise, whatever trial you face, He's in the middle of it. He's in the middle of it. He is with you. He is working all things together for good. His grace is there, and it was there for them. Moses strikes this rock in the middle of the desert, and water pours forth, abundant water. But that's not the only thing I want you to notice. There's another miracle that you might have missed if you read too quickly. very beginning of verse 6, this is what it says. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. What is God saying? I am so present with you that I am going to be standing on the very rock that you're going to strike. I'm right there. Now, God had revealed himself in so many ways to the people of Israel. A burning bush, right? A pillar, and a cloud. We don't know what this revelation looked like. But what we do know is God says, I was standing there. I'm standing there on the very rock which living water will flow from. What's amazing about this passage is it becomes the foundation of what the Apostle Paul teaches to us as the people of God. Now we don't find ourselves in the middle of Mount Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. But we find ourselves in the midst of a different kind of desert as we wait for Christ's return. A world that's broken, a world that's desperate, that so often leaves us begging for water. That leaves us thirsty and parched. This is what the Apostle Paul says about this passage. It's there on your sheet. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's the Red Sea. Right? They passed out of slavery. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now I wonder if you've ever noticed this passage before. What Paul is talking about is Exodus 17. He's saying, look, church, Remember the people of Israel. Remember how they wandered through the desert. Remember how God delivered them out of slavery and out of Egypt. Remember that He provided the spiritual food, manna. Remember that He provided the spiritual drink out of the rock. And know this, Christian, Paul says, that rock was Christ. What does it say in Exodus 17, verse 6? I will be standing on the rock. Why? Because the rock was Christ. Exodus 17, verse 7, we're told that Moses, in response to all that has happened, he names this place Massa and Meribah. It means quarreling or trial. It means testing. He's marking this as a place to remember, to commemorate that The people of Israel put God on trial, and he tested them, but he responded with his grace. And then he echoes a refrain that happens throughout the book of Exodus, and I would say throughout the Old Testament, and probably in the back of your own hearts and minds so often. The question that the people asked over and over and over again, how did they test the Lord? This is how they tested the Lord. Is the Lord among us or not? When we face trials, when we face suffering, when we find ourselves in the midst of a desert, parched, desperate for thirst, we ask a question so often. Some form of, God, where are you? Are you here or not? Are you among us or not? God, where are you? God has answered that question. In the person of Jesus Christ. His name is Emmanuel. It means God is with us. God, where are you in the midst of our suffering and our trial, in the midst of the desert? Where are you? He is the rock. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the one out of which living water flows. So when you find yourself thirsty in the midst of the desert, do not go to a drink that will never satisfy, but drink deeply from the rock that is Jesus Christ. Listen to his words from the book of John, and this is where we'll end. John 7, verse 37, these are the words of Christ. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Who believes in me? As the scripture has says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God has provided for us living water that we might drink deeply, that we might be satisfied, that we find ourselves thirsty when we find ourselves full of doubt, rather than bottle that in, rather than let that become hardened around our hearts to give rise to unbelief, bring your doubt. Bring your disappointment at the foot of the cross and drink deeply because He is the rock out of which living water flows. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You in the midst of the desert, You have provided for us a rock. Our rock and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Not only is He a sure foundation, but out of this rock, water springs forth. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us this morning not to drink from wells that are poisoned, wells that are depleted, to drink from places that will only leave us thirsty, that will only poison us from the inside out. But may this morning we drink deeply from the rock who is Jesus Christ. May our thirst be satisfied. We will find our bones that are weary restored. And may we know, may we taste, may we see that the Lord is good, that you are good, that you are faithful, and that you are leading us through this desert so that one day we would see the promised land. God, be with us as we go to our tables now. Help us to be honest about you and about the world that we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.